Take your Bible and open to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We are in verse 21, and I'll read down through verse 30. John 8. And he said, therefore, again to them, I go away, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Therefore the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I said, therefore, that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. We're coming to this portion of scripture for a second time. Uh, We worked our way about, uh, about halfway through it last Lord's Day, as we once again looked at the issue of unbelief in the light of the repeated warnings of Christ to the Jewish religious leaders And then by way of extension to all unbelievers, Christ who said, You shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. Again, the ultimate issue of all issues in life is dealing with the person of Jesus Christ. Making a decision, quote-unquote, if you will, about Christ. And the only appropriate, proper, biblical, eternal, life-saving decision that you can make upon the person of Jesus Christ is to believe exactly who he is. Because, again, your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ determines the destiny of your eternal soul. Jesus Christ is that significant in human history. And don't fail to understand that truth. Don't fail to understand that reality. Because you cannot ignore him. You must deal with him. Now, life in a fallen world is full of missed opportunities and regrets. Some are significant or Some are insignificant on a certain level, but some of them are often very painful, some even with disastrous consequences in time. But the greatest of all missed opportunities that will cause you to regret throughout all eternity is to reject the person of Jesus Christ, because unbelief in him is inexcusable. The evidence to his deity is unquestionable. And the reality is, deep down inside each and every man whether a man is honest enough to admit it. Deep down inside each and every man is the realization that there is a God to whom they are all personally accountable to, a God whom they have personally offended, a God whom they have sinned against, a God who they have sinned against and they fear because they know that there's going to be a day of judgment because all men fear death, and that's why men fear death, because they know there's a day of accounting. There's a time at their death that they will face this righteous, eternal judge in judgment. Unless they have repented and placed their faith upon Christ, it will be a terrible day. Therefore, again, the most fundamental, the greatest need of mankind, whether or not they admit to that reality, is their need of a Savior. One who can provide reconciliation with God the Father. Someone who who can come and atone for or cover over a person's sin. The Bible says in Romans 1 and 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who listen, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. There are no atheists in the truest sense. There are liars who deny the truth, who deny the internal and the external revelation that God has put as an act of grace and mercy into this world and upon their lives so that men might come to a knowledge of the truth and repent before it's too late. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, 
being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again, all men know. All men know there's a God to whom they are accountable. Again, because God has made it evident to them. Therefore, all men are without excuse. But here's the issue. John 3 and 19 says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's the condition of mankind before a holy God, desperately in need of a savior. Sitting in darkness, sitting in sin in the shadow of death in a dark world trapped in sin. But God, again, out of his tremendous kindness, his tremendous, tremendous passion, a compassion has met this world's greatest need by supplying to it the only Savior. John 3 and 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 of that chapter, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. Islam offers the world a prophet. Buddhism and Confucianism offers teachers and so-called enlightenment. But only Christianity offers an all-atoning Savior. Only Christianity offers the only Savior of the world that all men desperately need because the Bible says all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All men throughout all of the world, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, are all guilty before the holy God of the universe. And the only solution is to repent and to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Reject him, and Jesus says again by way of warning repeatedly, out of a tremendous heart of compassion for men, reject him and you shall die in your sins. It is a horrifying statement of true truth. And that's what we're looking at here in the text here in John 8. We're looking at a group of people who failed to heed the warning. People who even now at this very moment, some 2,000 years or so after the text was written, after the events in the text, are only now just beginning to pay that unpayable debt and everlasting penalty for the rejection of God's mercy through Christ who are only now just beginning to pay that unpayable debt in a place of endless agony and remorse without any hope of ever escaping, crying out for just one drop of water to cool off their tongue because they're in torment. And a literal fire that will never be quenched, a place called hell. Now in the context of the story, as you'll remember, Jesus is in the temple. And he's teaching. He's in the temple teaching in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. And he's not giving his own opinions like everybody does today. He's not teaching his own ideas or opinions. He, he is teaching, as he said back up in chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. So Jesus is in the temple and he's teaching and he's giving divine revelation from God. And as I said last time, that reveals to us the reality that ultimately there are only two views of authority uh, in life. Two views of authority concerning life and death in the future. And you either base your life and your eternal destiny on your own opinions and your own ideas and or the opinions and ideas of other fallen men around you, or you humble yourself and you submit yourself to the authority that is higher than you, an, an authority that is uh, not uh, from you, but higher than yourself, that is the revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. Only two ways. You either say, I know better, I have all knowledge, I have all wisdom, or you humble yourself under the teaching of the Word of God, and you receive, rather than reject, divine revelation. Now, the men in our story, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, they refused divine revelation. I told you before, they spent the entirety of their life studying. They studied the Old Testament text, and they missed the entire 
point of the Old Testament text because the entire point of the Old Testament text was the person of Jesus Christ who stood in their very presence and they didn't recognize him. The very person of Jesus Christ from whom rivers of living water flow, the one who is the light of the world, the one who is the promised Messiah, the Savior, God incarnate, and again, mankind's only hope. And the Jewish religious leaders utterly rejected him. They dismissed him outright. In fact, they wanted to kill him. And again, Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And Jesus says, For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. That is a statement of absolute authority, spoken without apology, because it's true. Now, I think the last time we were together in the text before us, we worked our way down to about verse 24. But just to back up a little bit by way of review, let's start in verse 21. He said therefore again to them, I go away and you shall seek me and you shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So he said therefore again to them. So in the context, again, those who are listening to his teaching there in the temple, especially the religious leaders of Israel, the scribes and the Pharisees. And again, out of a great heart of compassion, he's really warning them. He's declaring to them the truth, notifying them of reality, notifying them of the fact that their eternal destiny is not going to be exactly what they thought it was, that in fact their eternal destiny is going to be the opposite, the exact opposite of his. Christ says, I go away, speaking about his departure, he's really speaking about his upcoming death, resurrection, ascension into heaven. We're again, about six months or so away from his crucifixion. And he knows that his time on the earth in this ministry is coming to an end. He's going to soon depart. I go away where I'm going. You cannot come. He's departing. He's going to go back to his origin. He's going to go back to heaven. I said that earlier, chapter 7, verse 33, for a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. So again, he said, therefore to them, I go away. You shall seek me. You shall die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, the question is, what kind of teaching is that? Answer, it's the most important teaching that any person could ever hear. Time's running out. Time is running out. The most important teaching that anyone could ever hear, and the most important teaching that people who are currently on their way to eternal hell could ever stop and respond to and really listen to. Where I am going, you cannot come, I go away, and you seek me, and you shall die in your sin. Note, it's singular. You shall seek me, you shall die in your sin. What sin? Unbelief. How do you know that? I read the text. John 3 and 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Every breath you take in this universe without having to repent or having repented is an extraordinary breath of God's divine mercy and grace in your life. Because the reality of, of, of the truth is, apart from the person of Jesus Christ, if you are in this room or listening on the live stream, and have not repented, the verdict has already been given concerning your eternal condition, and it's guilty. The foolishness of men, the foolishness of false religious systems that say, I'm going to try to work my way, I'm going to try to earn my way to heaven, I'm going to try to do more good things than bad things, and hopefully in the end, it'll be okay. God of the universe says you are guilty, and you will face his condemnation. And again, it's a warning. It's mercy. This is truth. God's word is truth. He wants people to know the truth. I am going, you cannot come to me. I go away, you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin. And apart from Christ, those who have not believed have been judged already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So again, not only did Jesus tell them they were not going to be able to come to where he is, Again, that being in heaven, he was telling them that their eternal destiny in hell is going to be unrelieved. Because again, in people who are in eternal hell, don't you think they want relief? Don't you think they want to be delivered? But it's 
not available. They never will be because now it's too late. Because in time is the only opportunity that we have to come to a proper understanding and to a proper conclusion concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And these men fail to do so. You shall seek me, and the idea is implied as you can't find me. In the time that they had allotted to them, which is the time that all men have that God gives, and none of us knows how long that time is, but in the time that they had allotted to them, they hardened their heart against the truth. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, just like I read out of Romans 1, and they rejected the true truth, who was standing in their very presence outright. And now presently, the people we're reading about here in this text, now presently they are in a literal place of unending eternal physical conscious torment from which they'll have never have any hope of escape. And throughout all of eternity, they will continue to suffer because they're still sinful. Somebody has to pay for that sin. And if they rejected the only person who can pay for it in time, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then throughout all of eternity, those in hell will suffer eternally because they're always sinful. Therefore, they're always paying for their sin. And with an accusing conscience that will never be quieted accompanied with weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth because the reality is they did not have to be there. But you are there because you rejected the Savior in time. I go away, you shall seek me, and shall die in your sin where I am going. You cannot come, verse 22. Therefore the Jews were saying to him, We're saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Remember, I told you, this is the height of religious arrogance. This is grotesque self-righteousness on display. These guys, these religious leaders, were so convinced that if anybody was going to heaven, it was them. And therefore, since they had rejected the truth concerning him, the truth about him, since they didn't uh, see their need of him whatsoever, they mocked him. When he said, I go away, they had some understanding that he was referring to his death, which I tell you will not be by way of suicide, but it will be a sacrifice for sin. They said he will not kill himself, will he? And when Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come, since they were convinced they were on their way to heaven, they thought, well, you know, the only place that we can't go, because we're so good and so righteous, that would be hell. So he must be going to hell. They thought that's where he was going. Because they also thought in their system that suicide was the unforgivable sin and that such an unforgivable sin that there was a uh, people who killed themselves immediately ended up in the lowest, dark, darkest, hottest of hell. So these guys are so smugly self-righteous, so blinded by their own sin. They have so much scornful contempt for him. They don't get the point whatsoever of what he's talking about. They didn't understand that he was redirecting the conversation back to the condition of their soul, not his soul. But that's the condition of the self-righteous. Self-righteous always think they're good enough to get into heaven. Self-righteous always mock any kind of a need for a savior. The self-righteous reject the reality that they are sinners. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The self-righteous don't see themselves in poor in spirit, as poor in spirit, and the self-righteous never hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, they'll never see the kingdom of God. Therefore, they never hunger and thirst for righteousness, again, that they don't possess. Therefore, the self-righteous are eternally condemned. It's a terrifying reality. Everyone who trusts their own reason, everyone who trusts their own religion, everyone who trusts their own morality, their own goodness, their own righteousness, their own religious rituals and ceremonies, mistakenly believe that those things are going to get them into heaven. Rather than trusting in the free gift of God, the imputed righteousness given to those who by faith alone repent of their sin and believe upon the person of Jesus Christ. Those who reject truth in place of their own ideas, their own thoughts, their own reasonings, will find themselves under eternal condemnation. The Bible says very clearly, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Romans 3 and 20, Galatians 2 and 16. 
By the work of the law, no flesh will be justified. No one's getting into heaven by their own good works. No one's getting into heaven by their own goodness because none of us are good. There's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Proverbs 16.2 All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Proverbs 20 and 9 Who can say I have cleansed my heart and I am pure of my sin? Answer, no one. Proverbs 30 and 12, there is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet it is not washed from his filthiness. Self-righteous will never be saved. God only saves men by grace alone, amen? God saves men by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, full stop, exclamation mark, next page. Paul, Titus 3, 5. God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewing him by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured up out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And I'm telling you, Christ in this text is warning out of a great heart of compassion for people to respond to the truth. I go away, you shall seek me, you shall die in your sin, where I'm going you cannot come. Therefore the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, with, will he, since he says, where I'm going you cannot come. Again, the Jews, just like all self-righteous individuals, just like every false religious system in the world, irrespective of its name or its title or its practice, just as Paul said of the Jews, uh, uh, again, is applicable to them, it's applicable really to all believers who are trapped in these systems outside of Christ, they may have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. A lot of people have a zeal for God. But this is the only place you get knowledge. And wisdom is responding to the knowledge that has been revealed out of God's kindness. They may have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And I'm telling you, that's a terrifying place to be. Now, Christ is going to explain the problem to these fellows. And the problem is the difference between them and him. And that difference is ultimately going to send them to eternal condemnation, verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So Christ says, I am from above, I am not of this world. He's from heaven. They were worldly. You are from below. You are from this world. And remember I told you this world is the entire satanically inspired system of evil that is constantly opposed to God, that is ruled by Satan himself. 1 John 5 and 19. Listen. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, all of it. You know what that means? It means the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It means the entire world is united in wickedness. The whole world is united in wickedness, united by their wicked nature, by their wicked policy, their wicked principles, their wicked practices, because they rejected the truth and chose the darkness rather than the light. And Jesus is saying, you're from below, you're, you're from this world. You're part of this world. You're, you're part of this unbelieving, perishing world that has been blinded, blinded by Satan so they can't see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who's the image of God, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 4. This world loves darkness. Have you noticed? Loves moral corruption, filth. We exalt in our filth in this morally dark world. We elevate it. 
The world doesn't want anything to do with Christ, anything to do with Christians, because they hate both of them. It's because this world is made up of people who don't possess the Holy Spirit, John 14, 17. And if you don't possess the Holy Spirit, then you can't possess the truth. That's why the world is crazy and chaos and continues to get even deeper and dark, uh, deeper and darker into the craziness and the chaos because they don't possess the truth. They can't discern the truth. They don't understand the truth because they rejected the truth. And the world is full of people who rejoice over the death of Jesus. Christ speaking to true believers in the context of this verse, John 16 and 20. He's speaking to true believers. He said, John 16, 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. The world hates Christ. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He was saying to them, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. The Pharisees were sons of disobedience. They were walking in rebellion against God. They were from the world, part of it, opposed to God, opposed to Christ, enemies of God, as it says in James 4 and 4. Rejecting the truth, rejecting Christ. Verse 24. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sin. Now, remember, I told you that that word he is not there in the Greek text. It's been inserted by the English translators to help the flow, read easier in the English. So what Jesus very clearly says here is, you shall die in your sin, for unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. Again, it's an unmistakable claim to deity, identifying himself as God incarnate, God in the flesh, unless you believe that I am. Unless you believe that I am, the eternally self-existent God, born of a virgin, the one who's lived a sinless life, who's died as a substitutionary death as a sacrifice for the sins of all who would ever believe, defeating death and then rising victoriously from the grave and will ascend back to the Father in heaven. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And as I told you before, unless is the only hope of escape. Unless is the only hope of escape from God's coming wrath and God's judgment upon sin. Therefore, men would do well to sit up and pay attention and listen to divine truth, eternal truth. Unless, because again, it's a warning against willful rejection of truth, willful unbelief. Unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. It's a statement of unspeakable, terrifying, eternal consequences for those who reject that truth. And there's no mistake in the context of the story that he's making a very clear claim to deity. You read that in the end of the chapter, verse 59, the religious leaders understood exactly what he was saying. They took up stones to stone him. Don't buy the nonsense. He's just a good man, a religious fellow, a philosopher. That's ridiculous. He never claimed that. He is who he is. The religious leaders understood exactly the claim he was making to deity. And anyone but God himself who would come and make such an audacious statement that I am and then apply it to themselves would indeed be a blasphemer if a man clear claimed to be God. But that's exactly what Jesus did because the reality of the fact is that's exactly who he is. So he's the only one that can make that claim. So again, Christ is warning the so-called religious leaders that the only way for them or the only way for anyone else to escape God's coming condemnation, the only way to avoid dying in your sin is to believe upon Christ, the God-man the Messiah, the only Savior of the world. Verse 25, so they were saying to him, who are you? Now, I don't think for a moment these guys are asking a genuine question because they're not. They don't desire to know the truth. Rather, the way that they're saying this, I think very clearly, is it's with a sense of incredulous rejection. It's disdain in their voice along the lines of, Who in the world do you think you are to tell us that we're going to die in our sins and go to hell? Who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? Or what have I been saying to you from the beginning of my my ministry? What have I been telling you over and over again? I've been telling you the truth. 
Because God desires for you to know the truth. I've been telling you the truth. The fact that I am the light of the world, the fact that I am the source of eternal life, the one who believes and the one who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I am. Associating himself with God in the Old Testament. Eternal God sent to earth by the Father. That is exactly who he is. That's exactly who he has repeatedly told them who he is over and over again. And again, you, you look at his words, you look at his works. You look at all the miraculous deeds that he performed, his compassion, his mercy. It's unmistakably clear that he is none other than the God-man. Again, the evidence is undeniable. I've told you all along repeatedly, uh, unbelief has nothing to do with evidence or lack thereof. Unbelief always has to do with hardness of heart. Unbelief has to do with the fact that men love their sin. Because men love their sin so long, or so much, listen, because men love their sin so much, they're willing to take the chance and hoping that Jesus is not who he claims to be. They're, they're risking their eternal destiny on that foolish, mistaken idea. Foolishly, whisking, or ri- foolishly willing to risk their eternal destiny because they love their sin so much, because they love their darkness. So they were saying to him, who are you? And again, the answer is the Christ. It's like John is writing, the son of the living God, God incarnate. The one whom John himself, the writer of the book, describes at the beginning, John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, right? Proston Theon, face to face with God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator. God, that's who he is. And because that is who he is, and that reality is true... Verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. So when the Pharisees come and ask him the question, who are you, this kind of mocking question, again, asking in a scornful tone, with hard-hearted hearts, says, you know what? On top of everything I've told you so far, I'm going to give you an additional piece of information you can put there in your brain. Who am I? I happen to be your judge. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. I have many more accusations I could make. I have much more evidence I could present against you and against your sin. I'll stop right here because it's enough. Now, if you put yourself in the context of the story, you'd have to believe at this point these guys uh, who are listening, the religious leaders, are probably about to blow a gasket, right? I mean, they've got to be hot, chafing, increasingly incensed, angry towards Jesus. What have I told you through this series? It's always his words. It's always what he says. It's the truth he speaks. And sinners hate the truth. Sinners hate to hear the truth. I mean, he's already told them many things they don't want to hear. The fact that they are hopelessly lost in their sins. The fact that they're going to die in their sins unless they believe that he is God come in the flesh. The fact that they have no way out of the punishment that is due them unless they believe upon him. He's already told them that they are, on their, they are of this world, which is under the control of Satan himself. That they are actually under control of Satan himself. That they're headed for judgment and condemnation. And now he stops and tells them, oh, by the way, I happen to be your judge. And listen to me, whether they believe that to be true or not, and whether you believe that to be true or not, is absolutely irrelevant to the truth. His words are absolutely true because everything he spoke was true. He's not just an ordinary prophet. Is the one, the man sent from God. I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. If you have the NIV, it says, I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. You know what? He just kept pressing the truth. I mean, he, he's got his foot on their neck and he just keeps pressing the truth. 
because his word is true. He speaks nothing but the truth. Everything he said was absolutely true and in perfect harmony with the Father in his judgment. John 8 and 16. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and he who sent me. And the Father is going to make sure that the, 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 the truth prevails, whether again men accept it or not. The Father is going to make sure that judgment is meted out because that's what's promised for the unbeliever who has rejected Christ. And again, when God meets out the judgment, there's no escape, there's no appeal to a higher court because there is no higher court than the just God of the universe. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And again, it's a sober but compassionate warning to the unbeliever to repent before it is too late. Because God's judgment, once it comes, for the rejection of Christ is coming. And once that judgment is meted out, it will be too late. Verse 26 again. These things, or he spoke, or he who sent me is true. And these things which I heard from him. Listen, these things I speak to, or these things I speak into the world. Into the world. The ESV says, I declare to the world. I declare to the world the things I've heard from him. And again, the world, this evil satanic system that the Pharisees are a part of, Christ declares that truth to them, to the unbelieving world, the wicked world, that judgment is coming and and divine justice will prevail. Uh, God's word is at stake. He'll make sure that it comes according to his word. People have told me over the last few weeks just by way of Casual conversation, man, your your sermons are harsh. My dear friends, my sermons are not harsh. It's not the intent. My sermons are truthful to the word of God and meant to wake you up out of your spiritual slumber if you are self-satisfied in anything or satisfied in yourself or any other person except the person of Jesus Christ. When I go to the doctor, I want true truth from my doctor. When you go to the doctor, you want true truth from your doctor, amen? People can lie to you all week long. When you go to the doctor, you want the truth. And as a soul doctor, we deal in the truth. And Christ was very harsh with the religious leaders of Israel because they were leading so many people astray to the same hell that they are now in part in. And only just beginning to be in part in. It's a word of compassionate grace. The building is on fire and we start yelling and yanking you out of the building because the building's on fire and knock you down and drag you out the door to get you out of the building that's on fire, it's because we love you. Not because we're happy that you're sitting and you're going, yeah, the building's on fire, isn't it? It's very beautiful to see the glass burn. And just think how stupidly indifferent people are to the matters of eternity in their own soul. We're so caught up into anything and everything except the truth. Most people are being lulled into eternal condemnation. How many people in your life during the week, I know we're maybe a little bit special because we interact, but apart from the fellowship of the body of Christ here in this fellowship, how many people in your week, in your daily walk, are encouraging in your, in your walk with Christ? How many people are asking you are, you, are you mortifying the flesh? Are you dealing with sin? How many people are concerned about your soul? I would dare to bet, not even knowing, I would dare to bet the number is pretty small except in this fellowship, except with other brothers and sisters who may come from out of town and encourage you in your walk with the Lord, right? The world's on its way to hell, and Christ is saying, why will you die in your sin? Come out. He who sent me is true. The things I declare from him, these things I speak into this dark, evil world. Now, in the closing sections here of the verses before us, Jesus is going to make three declarations. Three declarations about his uh, authority and his right to judge based on his uh, relationship with God the Father. The first declaration that Jesus makes here, again, is the fact that he is God. Verse 27, they did not realize that he had been speaking to them 
about the Father. Verse 28, Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. As someone has rightly said, day and night are alike to the blind. These men were so hard in their hearts, so hard in their unbelief, and their willing unbelief. They have no ears to hear, no eyes to see. They are blind, absolutely blind to the truth. And again, remember, repeatedly, Christ had told them many times that he was from the Father, sent into the world by the Father, Again, his works, his words prove that reality. Yet they are in ignorance. They're in unbelief. They don't understand him. Again, verse 28, Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Again, when you lift up the Son of Man is a clear reference to the coming crucifixion of Christ, his death where he's going to die on the cross as a substitute for sinners. There's a bit of irony here in the verb that John uses, lift up. It usually means to exalt or to elevate. There are other words, common words in the Greek that he could have used to translate his lift up into the English, but he chose this word. Because again, this word shows that Christ's glorification is in his crucifixion. Now, the truth is, on one level, to be put on a cross as a public spectacle is the most degrading and humiliating thing that could ever happen to a man. But in the case of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ is that which elevates him and reveals his glory unlike anything else. The night before he was crucified, Jesus prayed John 17, 1. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. It's the cross that elevates and glorifies the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't the first time, if you've uh, paid attention, this isn't the first time that John spoke of the issue of Jesus being lifted up. You can just listen or you can turn back if you want. He said it the first time. He said it was back in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. That text uh, compares Christ to being lifted up uh, and and the lifting up of the serpent and and the pole in the wilderness when Israel is in its wilderness wanderings and they were afflicted by the deadly poisonous uh, serpents and they were dying back in Numbers 21. God in his judgment against the nation of Israel for their disobedience, their incessant complaining, he sent venomous snakes to bite them and the people are in a panic and They cried out and begged Moses to intercede on their behalf. And Moses prays to the Lord on the behalf of the people, and he's answered. And by divine grace, God in his compassion and his mercy tells Moses, I want you to take a pole, I want you to make a a replica of this uh, snake, the serpent in bronze, and raise that pole above the camp. And if those who are bitten by the snake would but look at that raised-up snake, thereby acknowledging their guilt, expressing their faith in God's promise of healing and forgiveness simply by believing what God said he would do to solve their problem. If they would simply but look at the snake, they would be healed and they would live. So it was an absolute necessity for the people, again in Numbers 21, for the sons of Israel to be delivered from the deadly bite of the serpent by looking up at the brazen serpent. And it's also an absolute necessity for the sons of men now, that means all of us, who are sinners, who carry the poison of sin introduced into the human race by the arch serpent, Satan himself. The only way that we can be delivered from the dying poisonous effects of our own sin is if we but look up at the crucified Christ. And only if we look upon Christ. Again, here in John's text, it really stresses the necessity of Christ's death. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And by the way, the title Son of Man is a messianic title. It's taken out of Daniel chapter 7. meaning the promised one, the anointed, the Messiah. Sinners can only be delivered by looking up. Sinners can only be delivered by looking upon Christ. 
to realize that he is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the self-existent God, the promised Messiah, God dwelling among men. The second time, obviously, is in our text here in uh, John 8, when uh, John uses this phraseology, lift it up. John 8, 28, Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, or you'll know that uh, I am the one who I claim to be, God incarnate. The third time is over in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, um, verse uh, 32. Jesus said, If I, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Verse 33 says he was saying these things to indicate the kind of death that he was going to die. Now, how does the cross glorify Christ? And why must the Son of Man be lifted up? Well, the answer is because it's the cross that reveals the holiness of God, the justice of God. The cross reveals the holiness and the justice of God who cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ was a necessary part of God's eternal plan to save sinners. Necessary because nothing else could accomplish God's purposes. No other person exists who could ever pay the price for sin so that men might be forgiven. In our sin, and in our sin we go free because no one else could die that death that would save sinners and not bring the justice of God upon us and crush us. It's only Jesus Christ that could stand in our place. No mere man can do that because we're all sinners. Every one of us has to pay the price of his or her own transgression unless there is one who is more than a man, unless there is one who is sinless, one who knew no sin, who could stand in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made this very one. God made him who knew no sin. That would be Jesus Christ. To be sin, to be the sin bearer. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's only through the one who's both God and man can the price of sin be paid for and the sinner not absolutely destroyed because God has poured his wrath not upon the guilty sinner but on the innocent substitute. That being Christ. So the Son of Man must be lifted up. Because again, not only is God holy, as this holy and just God, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, Hebrews 9 and 22. Again, meaning again that Christ's cross was a necessary part of God's plan of salvation, that he had to come and die as a substitute for sinners because the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ must be lifted up because there's no other substitute. Jesus Christ must be lifted up because it's at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where God reveals his abundant, rich grace and mercy. Where God reveals his love, his mercy that he has because he, again, has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. 1 John 3 and 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sends Christ into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4 and 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He is the one, Jesus Christ is the one who turns away God's just wrath against our sin And so that through the death of his son, God the Father might save sinners and clothe them with the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. I'm telling you what, that's glorious truth, right? It's glorious, wonderful truth. It glorifies the Father. It glorifies the Son. Jesus here in John 12 says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. James Boyce points this out. He says it was necessary for Christ to die 
because nothing but a crucified Christ will draw men to God. Liberalism won't do that. Cults won't draw men in great quantities. Men and women won't stay along with a man-centered religious system, but preach Christ crucified. As an emasculated Christianity will not reach the needs of men and will not draw men, it never has nor ever will. It says, but preach Christ crucified. Preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit, and men and women will begin to come to him. They will begin to leave their comfortable homes in the suburbs and come to the city churches where they would have come for no other reason. Preach any Christ, but Christ crucified, and you will not draw men for long, but preach the gospel of a Savior who alone tones for the sins of men and women by dying for them, and you will have hearers. Moreover, as Christ is lifted up, many of those who hear will believe. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. It's only a crucified, lifted up, exalted Christ that changes and transforms people from the inside out. Galatians 3 and 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for as it is written, cursed is everyone who does, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. All men have one great need, that's reconciliation. All men have one great need, that's reconciliation and regeneration. They need what they do not possess in themselves. They need to be reconciled, something they can't do in themselves, and they need life that they don't possess, divine life that only comes through the person of Jesus Christ as a gift of God's grace. And you know what? Satan hates that. Satan hates that message. He hates the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does everything he can to turn men's attention away from it or to distort its meaning or to to diminish its importance. Satan would have his men teach. And Satan does have his men everywhere. They're they're everywhere in this country. A lot of Satan's men are behind doors that have the word church written out on the front of them, but they're actually dens of Satan. And Satan would have his men teach anything and everything except the centrality of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only atonement for man's sin. Satan would have his men teach uh, on the example of Christ's love, and that uh, Christ is the greatest example of love the world has ever seen, that if men would just uh, feel all emotional and mushy about each other and they just follow the, the the love of Christ, if they just follow the great teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the world would be a better place, and we'd do a Coca-Cola commercial together. But you can't. Nobody can. Or you can try to follow the teaching of Christ. You, you can try to follow the example of selfless love of the person of Christ. You can try to imitate in that life, that in your life, but you will die in your sin because you will go to hell and die in your sin if you've not placed your full faith and confidence in Christ's death and Christ's death alone on the cross as your only substitute to pay for your sin. Satan hates the cross of Christ. Satan has his men teach and wants you to believe that by your goodness or your so-called good works, you can get to heaven. Again, anything to diminish the necessity of the cross, that's what he has his men teach. He has his men teach, you know, the world's a mess. It needs to get reconciled. So we're going to bring a reconciliation program into the world, and we're going to be nice to people who have different melanin counts, and we're going to do this stuff that the... Marxists do, and we're going to put some kind of Christian veneer over top of it. When the Lord Jesus Christ has already reconciled the nations, my dear friend, look to the book of the Revelation, and you can see that people from every tribe and tongue and and nation will stand before the throne worshiping the Lamb. We don't need Marxist theology to reconcile what God has already done through Christ. But Satan has his men teaching that everywhere. Anything and everything except Christ. Anything and everything except the centrality of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It 
It's only Christ that saves. Unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sin. Unless you believe that Jesus is the eternal God, God come in the flesh, sent to the earth by the Father, born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life in total dependence upon the Father, that he was lifted up on the cross to die as a substitute for our sins, then defeated death, and that his sacrifice and his sacrifice alone is the only sufficient sacrifice for sin, that it is now finished and nothing else needs to be done or added to that. You will die in your sin. And again, in verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Repeatedly said that. I'm going back to the Father. Therefore, not only did he know that he was going to die upon Calvary's cross, when you lift up the Son of Man, he knew that death would not be his end. He's going to have victory over sin, victory over the grave. Yet repeatedly he says he's going to return to the Father. Again, he, he anticipates a, a bodily, physical, bodily resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. And believing upon Christ's death, his resurrection, is absolutely, again, also essential to saving faith. Paul argues, 1 Corinthians fifteen fourteen: If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is vain. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you're still in your sins. So the first declaration that he makes here at the conclusion is the fact that he's God. Again, he makes that, that, that statement. Jesus said, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am. Well, in the context of talking to the Pharisees, how will they know? How will the Pharisees know by crucifying him that he is God come in the flesh? Now, some throughout the years have come and suggested, well, maybe it lies in the uh, phenomenal events that happened uh, at the crucifixion, the three hours of pitch black darkness in the middle of the day, uh, the giant earthquake, dead people coming out of the graves walking around, as it says in Matthew 27. Others have suggested, well, perhaps maybe the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin knew without a doubt that Jesus had been, uh, was the I am because he was resurrected. I mean, they were the guys that posted the soldiers there at the tomb and the soldiers had witnessed it and they came back and reported to them the resurrection. They came back to the Sanhedrin, the religious, re- the religious uh, leaders told the soldiers, go tell a lie. Don't let that truth get out. Deny the physical resurrection. Say that the disciples, this group of ragtag nobodies, defeated a highly trained Roman guard and stole him away in the middle of the night. Yeah, go tell that story. Others have come along throughout the years and suggested the Jews would know that Jesus is the Christ, God coming to the flesh because of the coming at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, 70 A.D. They'd be driven away from the only place they had to worship. doesn't stop them from worshiping today, although they have no place to worship, right? They don't really worship in truth. Josephus, the historian, seems to attribute the misfortunes of the nation of Israel to the murder of Christ. Maybe then they would know. How is he going to demonstrate the fact that he is the I am when they crucify him? I'll tell you. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And the way that you know that he is God lifted up is the fact that Jesus Christ changes people's lives. Amen? Jesus Christ changes people's lives. He transforms people's lives. Countless numbers. Philosophy doesn't do that. Moralisms don't do that. False religious systems do that. Don't do that. Only Christ does. Second Corinthians five seventeen. We use this all the time here. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a. I'm sorry, I could not hear you. He is a new creation. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Right? New things have come. It's what it means to be born again. We're new creations in Christ. Jesus Christ, you'll know that I am who I claim to be when you lift me up. Because Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, transforms people's lives. It's only through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that man's stubborn rebellion is put down. It's only through the cross where, where those who are spiritually dead are transformed and changed and made alive, able to receive, hear, understand, and, and live transformed truth. It's only at the cross where all the barriers between God and man are removed. It's only at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that God's revelation illumines and lightens the soul it's only at the cross of the lord jesus christ that through man uh, manifest transformed lives that god's power and glory is put on display
Somebody might ask the question, why in the world if the Pharisees knew? Listen to me. Why in the world would the Pharisees, if they knew for a fact that Jesus Christ literally defeated death and they did, why would they deny that? When you lift up the Son of Man, then you'll know. He's trying to again, give them an up, another opportunity. Right? Why, why would they not believe? Because Jesus says you're unwilling. Evidence is never the issue. Do, it's not an expressly theological statement, but I have a personal policy to never get into a stink fight with a skunk. Probably not going to win that one. John would say a bulldog can take a skunk anytime, but it's not worth it. Why do we get in these tangential arguments with people who try to subvert, suppress the truth and unrighteousness when it's the true truth is the only offensive weapon we have, and that's what we need to wield in we're having conversations with people. They knew Jesus Christ defeated death, yet they were unwilling to come to him. When you talk to people, take out your sword and actually unsheath it and use it. And then you just use it and you walk away. It's not you who do the convicting work. It's the Holy Spirit. And it's through the power of his word. And God has a desire that men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Use the word. When you lift up Christ, you'll know. Second thing. And I have to hurry. Second thing. He declares here at the end that he's in absolute perfect union with the Father. Verse 28. Therefore, Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. Then he adds this, I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father taught me. Jesus never said anything independently from the Father. And again, the cross is the ultimate act of obedience to the Father. It's evidence of his union with the Father. I do nothing on my own initiative. And again, Jesus over and over again in his ministry uh, spoke to the reality of the fact that the Father had sent him. Christ said, Luke 22, verse 42, not my will, but your will be done. That's why Paul says in Philippians 2 and 8 regarding Christ being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the Father, right, to the point of death, even death on the cross. I do nothing of my own initiative. I speak these things as the Father taught me. Again, he bears special reference to the divine commission the Lord Jesus Christ has been given by the Father because he has a perfect union with the Father. Last thing he says, the third thing he says, is he always pleases God. Verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Uh, again, it speaks of the unity between the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a harmony of mind, harmony of will, harmony of purpose, uh, a completed performance by uh, the Son uh, according to the Father's design. Again, that perfect righteousness and obedience and holiness and uh, that, that the Father, by which the Father is well pleased in his Son. He goes, I always do things that are pleasing to him. Boy, that's a statement we could run a sermon on. If we say Christ is our example, if we say Christ is our encouragement, I wonder how many of us could say, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I'll help you out. The answer is none of us. But thanks be to God, amen, thanks be to God, we have Jesus Christ who stands in our place, who perfectly fulfilled all righteousness. He not just bore our sin, he perfectly fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. So when Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, we can thank him that according to the Father's will, he left heaven, he came to earth, he lived a perfect life, he never violated God's law, he never sinned, and he pleased God by being a voluntary sacrifice to be the sin bearer. Therefore, Isaiah says it like this, Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 30 says, As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. At least outwardly. Lord willing, when we have time to go back to the text, we'll look and see that there is in the text a kind of belief that saves and a kind of belief that does not save. 
Obviously, there were many people in the context of the story here that did not and never would believe, but there were some people who initially did not believe, but they would later come to realize after the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection, they made a mistake, and on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jews would repent and receive Jesus as their Messiah. But for those who refused to repent, they themselves condemned themselves ultimately to die in their sin, and they'll never see the glory of heaven. They themselves chose eternal wrath because of their rejection of God's mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The question of the hour, the question of the entire series is be, what about you? What are you going to do with the person of Jesus Christ? What do you believe about the person of Jesus Christ? And there's a difference between intellectual assent. I believe in Jesus. Well, good. The devil believes in Jesus, too. There's a difference in intellectual assent to truth and actually having that truth come through your entire body and affect your mind, your hands, your feet, and your heart. And it's only that kind of transformational truth that changes people. Intellectual assent will send you to the same place that the devil resides in. It's transformed lives through the power of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, when, I let, when the Son of Man is lifted up, you'll know. The first thing that you do to please the Father in response to that truth is to repent. Believe upon that truth, repent, and by faith alone believe upon Christ, again, the one, the only one whom God lifted up to draw all men unto himself. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this wonderful, wonderful truth that you have left for us in your word. We're so thankful for your tremendous love and mercy and kindness. Love literally lifted up. Love that transforms and changes from the inside out. And our greatest desperate need is a Savior because we've all sinned and all fall short of your glory. And the only one who can reconcile us to yourself is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ whom we love and adore and who we are so thankful for your gift to us. Help those who are in blindness be freed from Satan's deception. Help us who walk in the light to live according to that great, wonderful truth and to be a light to those who you are saving, calling to yourself from eternity and time all around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.